0: beautiful people. My name is Brenda Davies. I'm the creator and host of In the Gray. And if you caught last week's episode, this was a conversation between myself, one of my dear friends, Lauren Schweitzer, and Margot Brooke. We really got into the nitty-gritty of our experiences as models, some of the horrific things that we have endured as people moving through that industry. And this ties beautifully into today's conversation with Sarah Ziff. Sarah Ziff is the founder and executive director of the Model Alliance, a nonprofit research policy and advocacy organization for fashion workers. Sarah is a native New Yorker and longtime model, and she received her BA from Columbia University and her MBA from Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Sarah Ziff is a truly impressive person because after 15 years in the modeling industry myself, I noticed so many of the atrocities and injustices, so many ways that people were not treated with human dignity or human rights or labor rights. I always thought someone needs to come in here and do something. And Sarah Ziff is the one that created this organization that aims to really amend all of these situations. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation today. And if you missed last week's episode, go and check that out as well. And that's it. I love you all so much. Everyone in this room, As leaders
1: of this industry, you have the power to make things right. Not in a few years, but right now. Toronto Burke's Me Too movement went viral four years ago. And although there's been some progress, the fashion industry still has a very long way to go.
0: All right, the first thing I would like to tell you is that you are my all-time favorite Delia's model. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) God
1: so funny be- <laughs> that's like uh, of all of the campaigns and shows that I did that is the one that haunts me although hey, I'll take it as a compliment
0: why does it haunt you you were haunting me I was like in my bedroom at 14 years old like if only I could be this girl she's so beautiful <laughs> she has it all look at her outfits <laughs> those bucket hats I mean hey
1: yeah no I uh, I I also feel like Gillies is coming back. Like now I'm realizing that I'm old because some of the, like the Delia's catalogs are
0: now like inspiration for people in an ironic way. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, to your point, I basically dress my son like he's in a Delia's catalog. (laughs) There you go. How old is your son? He's two. Oh, wow. I have a one and a half year old. Oh yeah. Are you tired? (laughs) Always.
1: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's really a lot. And everyone said that. But until you go through it, it's uh, I don't think you fully appreciate how consuming it is.
0: Yeah, it's the sleep deprivation for me, really. <laughs> Do you still not sleep? Well, he wakes me up at least one to two times at night. And I think just the constant interruption is like enough to kind of like put you in a tizzy the rest of the day. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been lucky with her sleeping through the night, but yeah, it's just, I think part of it is when you're working full time and also like for me, the work that I'm doing is. That it, it, it itself is all consuming, you know, it's not like you just kind of clock in and out. I feel like um, it's like work that I'm passionate about. And uh, and so then on top of that, being a parent and wanting to be really present is it's 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 so much work. I'm not complaining. It's just like a new reality that I'm still finding my footing on.
0: Yeah, I relate completely. I'm sure a lot of working parents feel absolutely the same way. Yes. So, okay. I would like to start at the top. Um, hoping that's m- not mundane for you to just go through the story again. <laughs> okay. You can give the abridged version, but um, basically I just want to know your entrance into the modeling industry, what you would thought it would be versus, you know, what you discovered when you started dipping your toe in and having these experiences?
1: Hmm. I, it was a long time ago and I was young. I, I started at 14. Um, that's when I was scouted in New York and it wasn't something I aspired to do or had really thought much about. It was sort of, it was something that happened to me. And I know that other models talk about it in the same way. Usually when you pursue a career, it's like something that you really study for and pursue yourself and modeling can be quite passive. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of like someone else decides if they want you. (laughs) And then you just kind of try to make sense of it as you go along. So what did I think it was? I really don't know what I expected it to be, um, but I was definitely excited to have the opportunity to do it. I mean, when you're 14 years old, uh, it, I remember feeling, you know, like it was really exciting in part because it gave me a shot at financial independence which Mm -hmm. I really valued from a young age. Um, I think I was hyper aware of, um, my, my mom was a lawyer, but didn't ultimately like scaled back and became a stay at home mom. And my dad was the one who had a full career. And I think I was always very mindful of how, um, women like earned less money than men or often had to sort of compromise their careers to be the primary caregiver. And so modeling was, in some ways, it seemed like a feminist endeavor in the sense that it's one of the few professions, I think, where women out earn men. And if you're lucky, you can make good money in a relatively short period of time. So I saw it as a chance to sort of gain financial independence and set myself up.
0: That's really interesting, um, how wise, too, because I feel like if I had been scouted at fourteen years old, I would have just seen it as a validation out of the nerddom of being in high school. and, oh, this means I'm pretty, and this means boys will like me. And um, yeah, how did so you I love start? it were you did you seek it out, or did they you get scouted? I actually moved to, well, I mean, growing up in a a little town, like outside of Philadelphia in New Jersey, I was doing things like I don't even know how I got hooked up with this. Maybe it was like a newspaper advertisement, which is going to make me sound like a thousand years old, Mm -hmm. but uh, limited to that store was offering for girls to like pick out any outfit in the store and you could model in the window. So me and my best friend would go and just be so exhilarated putting on all these like sunflower prints and just like standing in the window, which (laughs) is like so ridiculous and humiliating now that I think about it. But there was... It was always about like the beauty for me or the endeavor to be beautiful. This is why, like, honestly, you were a part of that experience, like looking at women like you who like looked like me, which obviously tons of representation for a skinny blonde white girl everywhere. So I was like, oh, I could do this. Maybe I could do this. But I really put it out of my head because when I was, I think, 15 or no, no, no. I was 18 or 17. I remember I had my first boyfriend. I'd never been kissed. He was like the first guy to ever kiss me. And I had a lot of validation around that relationship. And my mom took me to a model scouting in Philadelphia. So they were like small, whatever. But I remember it really vividly because I got in the room and everyone had always been like, oh, you're tall. You can model, you can model. So I went in with all this confidence And very quickly there was like three or four people sitting at a table and they began addressing me in a dehumanizing way, in a way that I got very accustomed to being in the industry for 15 years where they were just pointing out elements of my body. They were like, well, you could stand to lose like 20, 25 pounds. And when I left, they made fun of my walk too. They were like, you need to learn how to walk. Come back when you figure that out. And they just like treated me like trash. So I left with my mom and I was just like laughing with her because I was, you know, really loved and felt good about myself. And we were like 25 pounds. I was like, yeah, maybe five pounds, but that's insane. Mm-hmm. But I was in the car with my boyfriend getting gas. I just remember this moment. And I told him the story and was like, they told me I needed to lose 25 pounds. And he looked at me and was like, well, maybe, maybe. And that actually sent me into a five-year bout of anorexia. So, and then while I was in LA being an anorexic, then I was also getting noticed. And I actually started working with friends for this brand called Wild Fox. My friends, Kim and Emily started that brand and those are really fun, but I would be with like your models and stuff. And I'd be like, those are the real models. I'm like the sham that's just entered the situation. No. And then, um, and then I went through a terrible depression because I got divorced and it was at that time that I could not eat. I couldn't sleep. And I got scouted by nasty gal. And then next models was like, come on in here. I was like, oh, cause I'm on death's door because I can't eat. And they were like, we love it. <laughs> I was that was the first agency I signed with yeah I don't have uh, fun things to say about any of the main agencies at all I would tell girl today to run the fuck really far away from all of them yeah I'm a big believer too that there's not some like nefarious organization or group of people like putting their fingers together like haha we're gonna destroy these young people it's full of like Good people, people with bad intentions, people with fine intentions, people just trying to survive and feed their families. So I think it's interesting with someone like you doing this advocacy work to be like, this is an industry. This is a model that we're up against. This is labor laws we're up against. It's not like coming for specific individuals, which the Me Too movement did, but like there's so much more work to do. Yep. Well, how are you scouted now that you've heard my whole story? how did I start? Yeah. Um,
1: I was, uh, in ninth grade, I guess. Yeah. I was, I was walking home from school. I went to Bronx science and I got out of the subway, I think at 14th street at union square. And then I was walking down university place and got scouted by a woman who was pushing, a kid in a in a stroller. And I think I had been scouted a few times before, but was always a little creeped out because it was always kind of like creepy guys. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this was a woman and a mom made me feel, I think, a little bit more comfortable. And she asked me if I was a model, and I said no. And then she's like, "Oh, well, I'd love to introduce you to an agency, and that was next. And I went from there. Um, And it all kind of happened very quickly. And of course I was in high school and um, I come from a family of academics. My dad's a professor at NYU and like modeling was the last thing that they wanted me to do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so when I started, like the agency started booking me for like a show for Calvin Klein and, you know, jobs involving traveling that had like with no regard for my school schedule and uh they encouraged me to drop out of school to pursue this and my parents were like whoa what's going on and thank god that they um put their foot down because uh Yeah. Like it was very clear from the beginning that the agencies are not concerned about the like children's welfare. (laughs) They just want to milk you for all your worth. And that's not a commentary on like individuals. I came across like individual agents who were, you know, good, well-meaning people, but that's just the reality is, um, yeah, they didn't care if I missed school. They didn't care if I was working ridiculous hours even as a 14 year old so I um I did some stuff like you know Delia's and 17 magazine which ironically I was shooting at like 14 15 (laughs) Uh Um, and then scaled back because it was getting in the way of school too much and then started again when I graduated
0: Did you feel frustrated that you were scaling back or did you feel afraid that you were going to miss this wave of opportunity? Yeah, which is so messed up because (laughs) (laughs) I remember thinking I have
1: to make the most of this while I can because I only have this short window of time. So even at 14, I was concerned about being too old or
0: aging out. Mm -hmm. It's just absurd. Uh, With all of the research that you've done, I'm sure, have you looked into the history of how this train started coming off the tracks to begin with? Because I have on my list, we're going to get into labor laws, weight loss, sexual harassment, model apartments, all of that stuff. But I'm so curious how we got here. How did we get to a point where all of a sudden this wafy and possibly not only thin, but like double zero children's sizes. And also this like crazy mentality of, of youth and ageism and all of it. Like, how did it go this way? Because my understanding is there used to be like runway shows for like Halston and all of the biggest houses, but they would be like grown ass women with human bodies. So where did this begin? How did this start? That is a good question. I don't know if I have a definitive answer, but
1: I do think that the industry confused being new and having a moment with age. And so there was like always an interest in, um, discovering someone and, you know, making a career and, um, you know, being the first to like shoot someone, of course, like people like Stephen Meisel were known for like making models careers and plucking them out of obscurity. And, and <clears throat> it just so happens that when you're young and, um, have no other work experience, you're really malleable and <laughs> you, um, obviously have an adolescent physique and I think there's obviously, there's like this pressure to maintain it, um, to not fill out. And that's like a whole other, (laughs) whole other conversation. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of different things at play. There isn't sort of one straightforward answer, but I think a lot of it has to do with, um, an interest in newness, which is conflated with youth.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I, I love all of the forward momentum and change that we're seeing in the industry now, especially as it pertains to inclusivity and body inclusivity and all of that even though I also think it's still so far to go. And I still don't like that there's an industry that is telling us what beauty is and what those standards are. I don't think that this industry should have the power that it does in that way. That's a whole other story. Your work is about protecting the people that are deemed as the most beautiful and picturesque people in the world. So, well, and it's also (laughs) about protecting
1: people who, It's an aspirational industry, right? So it's also about protecting people who aspire to gain entry when in reality, very few people actually ever make it.
0: Mm, Yes, absolutely. Yeah, all the false promises. So I think not to hog the conversation, but I'll tell a little bit more about my observations to start off the conversation and what your advocacy is about and why it is so important, because again, I was not like a world-class traveling model. The closest I ever got was, um, next said they would send me to Paris. If I could get down to a 25, I've never, ever been below 27 inch waist. And I starved myself and lived off of water and maybe some juice for like two weeks. And I did it. I got down to like 24 and three quarters or something. And they were like, you made it, you did it. But I ended up not going to Paris because I was like, this is completely unsustainable. I'm either going to have to pivot and start taking energy supplements, like drugs, speed, cocaine, like whatever people do. Cause I know that drug use is rampant because, It is of a necessity. People need to stay awake and alive and alert enough to do these runway shows. And it's impossible when you have no sustenance. I also did go to London to um, work for a sister agency of Next. And my observation of that was that the other girls were in model apartments. I, thank God, had the luxury of staying with a friend in her boyfriend's apartment. But the girls that I talked to were spending an astronomical amount of money, like $1,500 a month, I want to say, to share bunk bedded rooms with seven other models. And so they inflate these model apartments so that the market value is irrelevant. And then you owe this to the agency. And the one way that they did get me, I remember I worked for like two and a half months or something. I was expecting to get a check and... (laughs) I think I came home with $750 because I looked at this gigantic contract. I want to say it was like 50 pages long. I read it the best I could, but I had missed things. Like when I got to London, they opened up this drawer and there was a bunch of cell phones in it, like old cell phones. And the agent was very casually like, do you, do you need a cell phone while you're here? Did you already get one at the store? And I was like, oh no, I'll take one, took one. I think I was charged $45 a day because I said yes to that cell phone. And then I also have friends to round it off who were sent to China or different industries in different places as young women. And a part of their quote job was to be dancing at nightclubs with businessmen and that there were often girls from impoverished places and war-torn countries, even who were in those same situations. And they were actually being trafficked essentially because they would accept money for pay for sex in those situations, because these are women, children in dire circumstance, whose families have sent them to these places for promise of a better future. So it's not just some shallow endeavor of like, oh, these girls just want to feel beautiful and they want to be Instagram famous or whatever. This is young women, sometimes children trying to get out of dire circumstances. And they're completely taken advantage of from top to bottom in this industry. The last thing I'll say is one time I was sexually assaulted on set, a photographer was pretending to fix my bikini bottom and he put his fingers in my vagina. And that's all I'll say about like, I feel like those certain circumstances, when I look into the work that you're doing, touch on almost every issue that I observed almost as an outsider, I was like in it, but not as deep as other people. And still I was able to very visibly and easily see these injustices. I'm so sorry that you experienced that first. Um, I mean, have you met anyone who hasn't almost like, it feels like the majority I talk to have had these experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think
1: unfortunately it is really common. Um, I know I like, I feel like I experienced pretty much everything that I hear about still to this day through our support line. Um, And it's everything that you said is it's it's exactly right. And unfortunately it's been going on unchecked for decades. And I think part of the problem is that it has like modeling hasn't been thought about as work where uh, you deserve to have labor rights and, um, you know, basic protections, it's sort of seen more as a privilege than a job. And so I think because of that, people, you know, there's this sense that like, oh, this is prestigious. I shouldn't complain. You're made to feel like, um, you know, you're lucky you're here. And um, you also are very aware of how disposable you are. So um, there's always gonna be another girl who's happy to take your place. And I think that's not unique to the fashion industry, but it's certainly compounded in our case by like extreme youth, often people living and working far from home or any kind of support system. And then, you know, as I've done this work and I've come to sort of see the fuller context, Very few, if any, legal protections. You know, um, I can talk about this more, but when I first started the Model Alliance, we looked at the laws on the books and we found that child models, models under 18 years old in New York, the center of the American fashion industry, were not even covered under child labor law. We were cut out. How is that possible? good question. How is that possible? Okay. (laughs) But so, you know, there had been, for years, there have been, you know, complaints about how the modeling industry promotes this unrealistic, unhealthy ideal. And it was sort of framed as a consumer protection issue. Like these images of these girls are bad for women. Well, Mm -hmm. Let's flip that and think about this as a labor rights issue. What, you know, here we're talking about a really vulnerable, exploited workforce um, of mostly kids um, who are, you know, jeopardizing their health by being told to starve themselves, who, um, you know, are being pressured to drop out of school, who don't you know have financial transparency often are getting paid in trade, not even in money. I mean, there's so many injustices, and <clears throat> I really think that the fact that this is a female-dominated industry and that it's fashion, so it's you know seen as frivolous, has meant that that people have not taken our concerns seriously. It's made it that much harder. Um, to try to advance like the most basic rights and protections for our workforce.
0: I'm so curious. Was there a moment that like the straw that broke the camel's back for you? I know that you ended up turning the cameras around and ended up doing behind the scenes interviews with your peers at fashion week. And I watched bits of that. So interesting. It's so interesting to see how much we've progressed and our thinking too, because I talk a lot on my channel about embodiment, for example, like models for sure are encouraged to disembody, to see like your body as this clothing rack, this like tool that you're using, but people can touch you at any time you have to get dressed with no protection, no barrier. And like you said, there's children, there's these are children that we're talking about, um, getting dressed in front of grown adults. It's the predators are everywhere. I've even watched like interviews with male models who've had their faces obscured because of the shame that comes along with like male sexual assault. But there, there are a lot of predators that are able to thrive in this industry because of this lack of protection. So all of that said, I'm like when I was watching pieces of your documentary with all of these supermodels that I adore and that I grew up with, it was interesting to see that they had no like true recognition, at least verbally that they were expressing to you of the autonomy that they are allowed to have. It was like, this has already been forfeited long ago. Like we stepped into this industry. This is what we're doing. So I am just curious if there was a moment where you were like, wait, this is really too much or this has gone too far was there something in the documentary process where you realized that you had to stand up and say something hmm.
1: well the documentary in some ways i'm embarrassed by Why? the documentary because it well it i started shooting it with my then boyfriend who is a filmmaker when I was 18 years old. So this is like a lifetime ago. It feels like a time capsule. And uh, and I wasn't looking to make an expose. I just got in the habit with him of, you know, like filming my life and along the way was sort of trying to make sense of my experience. And this was around the same time that America's Next Top Model came out. And it was the sort of Hollywood version. It had nothing to do with the realities of working in the industry. And from there, we kind of thought maybe this would be interesting to other people. And so we expanded the pool of footage by giving cameras to friends of mine who are models and doing interviews. And I have to say, like, some of the most compelling and disturbing footage was cut at the last minute um, because... uh, people got cold feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was really uh, that was tough because you know as a filmmaker you want to tell the best story and you want people to really sort of understand people's experiences um, but you don't want to sort of further exploitation by telling stories that people are not comfortable sharing. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I erred on the side of friendship and, um, and so when the film came out, you know, there were some, it, like in a New York times r- film review was awful. You know, it was sort of like, oh, like pretty girls complaining, like, how, what do you have to complain about? You know, play me the tiniest violin. This is really like, not that bad. And there's nothing revelatory about this. Um, yeah, the reception was quite mixed. And it was just frustrating because it was really like, it, it Dutch, it it just, it was like the tip of the iceberg. And I, I actually also wasn't, I didn't have enough perspective to really um, examine my own experience. So in some ways it was a, it was, it helped me gain perspective and get to where, I am now, and also gave me the platform to speak out and form the model alliance. Um, I I followed recently Emily Radikowski's sort of press around her book, and she talked about it. it. It it struck me that she was talking about her book somewhat in the same way. She wasn't saying like, these are my sort of fully formed, crystallized ideas on the industry or whatever. Um, it's sort of uh a way for me to make sense of my experience. And I feel the same way about that film at the the time.
0: Yeah. I feel like I gave you like a a rambling thought because I was trying to be, you know, trying not to sound offensive in any way, because to me, what you created in that moment was all that a person could create in that moment, because there were so few awakenings in ourselves and our society and our culture. to even understand what was wrong like it was such a, a limited view but you were doing your best and i think for me the birds eye view of watching it is the visibility of all those blind spots i think as a historical piece it's interesting to have sitting there to be like look how blind we were to these things i i don't remember oh, who it was it was yeah it was like a fashion editor dude and and you were like asking you know do you think um children need to have like not protection on set but need to have um their parents or people there and he was like well you know carly claus is cool and she's like fine carly <laughs> claus for anyone who doesn't know is like a girl that got like scouted super young and just like ascended to the tippy top of everything made tons of money from what i understand um and even watching him just be so dismissive and he said something i should have pulled the quote but it was like um temptation he used the word temptation he was like yeah maybe uh some girls will be prone to fall in temptation and maybe they need more protection but someone like you know there's other girls that are perfectly fine and that was so interesting to watch cuz first of all whatever dude whatever dude that doesn't have any insight into this cuz you're a man you're a fashion editor like shut up I think
1: he was a casting director
0: <laughs> yeah and and <laughs> I think
1: I also remember asking him in that interview about um, pressure to be thin. And he said something like, Oh, you know, I, I," something to the effect of, Oh, you know, we want people to be healthy, but by that I don't mean fat. (laughs) And it was just, there's, I, I agree. It's sort of, it's like I said, it's like a little time capsule. It, it's reflective of that time. And it came out in, it was in theaters in 2010. So
0: we didn't is, know anything back then. Like you're, you're, don't be embarrassed. You're 19. You didn't know anything. People were 80 and still didn't have the knowledge that we have now. And that's why I brought up the piece of embodiment and everything. Cause I think, um, I just thought it was really interesting to hear the word temptation used in that guy's sentiment, because the implication there is that you are responsible for holding on to whatever morality is like, and this was not said this was just my understanding of what was implied with the word temptation that to not quote fall into drugs or come into the temptation of like doing nudity you're not comfortable with or whatever like you have to have enough wherewithal within yourself to make those decisions. And um, Kornikova one of the women you were talking to was kind of saying the same thing, like that it takes a while for you to learn how to advocate for yourself. And again, 2010, you said people weren't using the words even advocate for yourself. But all of that said, there was so little understanding on, first of all, we're taking children. We have so many power dynamics at play. We have these famous photographers that could make or break your entire career. And then you as a 14 to 21 year old are supposed to have the wherewithal to quote, not fall into temptation and be able to stand up to the man and be like, no, I'm not going to take my top off. That was not an option. Am I correct, Sarah? (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. There was
1: no, it was all about, um, individual personal responsibility without any recognition for how these are entrenched systemic abuses with massive power imbalances at play.
0: Yes. 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 And today's video is sponsored by Paleo Valley. So we all know that vitamin C is known for its ability to support a strong immune system. But what you may not know is that humans are one of the only mammals that don't make our own vitamin C, meaning that it's vital we get this from our diet. With the nutritional content of our food rapidly declining, it's essential we find a better way to get adequate nutrients, particularly vitamin C. And taking Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is the perfect way to do that. Also, beyond the support for your immune system, studies have shown that vitamin C can elevate your mood and lower the stress hormone cortisol to achieve better sleep. So head over to paleovalley.com slash God is gray and use offer code Brenda to get 15% off your first order today. So that kind of brings me back to then you do this documentary. It has mixed reviews. Did that break your heart? Was that hard to know that you had more information that you were holding on to and that that was missed in the documentary? Yeah. At the time it was really crushing.
1: Yeah. I, like didn't even go to our premiere in LA because of the initial reception of the film. And I also just, it was really tough because I was still working. I was, you know, making good money. I was putting myself through college. Um, I, you know, don't come from like a wealthy family. I have been basically, financially independent since I was 18. And I, so it was like speaking out, even though it felt like just the tip of the iceberg speaking out and then being painted as this whistleblower Mm. had a big impact on my career at the time. And pretty much overnight, I stopped working. I had to take out student loans. I like, had to sell my house. Like I really, it really uh, had a big impact. And so then, so to sort of like put yourself out there, start to call out abuse in the industry when like nobody was <laughs> talking about it. There was, there was no culture of activism at all. Mm-mm. Um, And then to be sort of like, criticized by like the elites who were like, oh, what is she complaining about? And then to also get like, feel like, well, I'm biting the hand that feeds me and to have my like livelihood totally jeopardized. It was a really tough place to be. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. I I think it, I think it forced me to, to have to work really hard to help people understand how this was not just about like me. This is like a system of abuse. And the one, the one thing that was good was the film became kind of an organizing tool, you know, like models would come to me during screenings and, you know, they'd have like have tears in their eyes and it would really resonate with them. And, um, so it like started a conversation and it did give me this platform to speak out, but it was kind of imperfect. and. Um, whatever, it it just, it made me feel like I, this, I don't want to just expose abuses. I really want to try to make the industry better. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I don't think the industry is all bad, but I think there's like, there are a lot of problems. And if we can start to think about these as labor rights issues, then it's like actionable, then there's something that we can do. And, um, and then, yeah, that became the next 10 years of my
0: life. <laughs> Yes. Something that people may not understand is you began the model alliance in 2012. So to your own point, it sounds Mm -hmm. like the documentary was your exploration of trying to be like, look what's wrong. And I can understand like all of the hope because the videos I do like that too. Sometimes I think I can make one video and be like, and then the world will change. Advocacy does not work like that. You're 10 years in and you're just now, I think, introducing the fashion workers act and these sorts of things. So how did it move from documentary, losing work, being ostracized or judged by people that are elite in the industry to being like, oh, okay, now this is how I can make an actionable change and start this alliance.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, that was like the sort of chronology of events. And it was, there was no playbook to follow. It was really an experiment. I was just sort of Trying to figure it out as I went along. And um, I approached established unions and asked if they would extend models um, membership. And basically, long story short, was because we're generally considered independent contractors under federal law in the US, we're not able to unionize. And so I had to think about an alternative approach. And so for me, this was not just about trying to improve the modeling industry. It was about It was about creating a new labor rights framework for a global industry um, that depends on, you know, freelance workers who are highly mobile, you know, you're in New York one day, Paris the next, Milan, Um, you know, it's not like the world of work of like our parents' generation. And so for me, it was it was like I wanted to fight these injustices, but it was also sort of interesting as an intellectual exercise to try to wrap my head around a new fangled approach to, you know, advancing labor rights. And um, and I had I had studied, you know, the labor movement and community organizing in college around the same time that the film came out. And so these were sort of ideas that were percolating in my mind. Um, and yeah, so it was really like having the door slammed in my face by the unions that made me think, okay, like, I'm just going to have to like, figure this out.
0: (laughs) Damn! Oh my gosh. I love you. I'm so impressed. So happy you're doing this. (laughs) So Let's start tackling these issues that are the systemic problems that you notice. And I think this could be poised as like the more boring or mundane one, but I, but labor laws, I think, like you said, that's the crux of everything. It seems like that was the way you were able to take all the horrific stories and lived experiences that you have and share with your peers and turn it into something actionable. So what are some of the major flaws in the modeling industry that can be addressed by simply changing the labor laws around the industry itself? Yeah, Um,
1: well, so I mentioned our first piece of legislation was the Child Model Act. We looked at the laws on the books and we found that um, kids, you know, models under 18 were not even covered under New York labor law. And, uh, so that was, you know, legal research that I did with basically a team of volunteers. A lot of the Model Alliance's work for many years was like purely volunteer based. Um, Mm. I think people assume that we, you know, have all this infrastructure, but that certainly wasn't the case at the beginning. Um, and yeah, we, we, introduced this the child model act which basically uh included kids who are models under the classification of child performer so like an actor or singer or dancer um we wanted you know child models to have the same protections and um I don't want I don't know how much you want to get into the sort of like nitty-gritty policy stuff I can like nerd out with you but um <laughs> But, I really yeah. love nerding out. <laughs> well, I mean, also, I think <clears throat> one thing that's interesting is that it, it effectively made it more difficult to hire minors to work as models. Um, and and I think an indirect consequence of that was that clients decided to try to hire 18 and up just because it was easier. They didn't have to go through all that paperwork of having a certificate of eligibility and, you know. Um, having to meet these various different requirements. So I think that was good because obviously you have the the models for the most part are representing a feminine ideal of beauty that um, is supposed to be aspirational for women. And it's really messed up that you have like a 15 year old girl representing that beauty ideal to women in their twenties, thirties, forties and up.
0: Yeah, I I love that that spin on the whole issue because you could say, "Oh, I don't give a damn about pretty people and their problems." But it is that trickle-down effect of if we can change the systemic issues in modeling and break apart what we see as beauty standards and allow inclusivity and advance the way we see beauty, that will benefit society at large because bulimia and anorexia are still massive problems in our society among young women. And then, like you said, grown ass women like ourselves are looking to aspire to have bodies of literal children. So we should care about this issue because it does affect us. And then, then this right. trickle down effect way. Yeah, um,
1: And
0: also- then, I mean, I can talk about
1: other, other, pieces of legislation, like the more recent bill that we introduced, if that's sure. Um, so currently models and creatives work through management companies, um, in New York, which unlike talent agencies escape any kind of licensing or regulation. And the fashion workers act is a bill that we just introduced that would basically close that loophole by which Uh, management companies escape any accountability and um, a a responsibility to act in the best interest of the people they represent. Um, Um, So
0: many people must really have a problem with you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so far, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, We, I
1: I, I know that the, um, there's always pushback. There's always pushback. And actually the most pushback that we've gotten over the years has been from the agencies
0: who are supposed to be
1: representing the model's interests. So that well, think-
0: agencies have always been the worst offenders. I I'm horrified. And I've always, again, waited for someone to stand up and do something because, I talked to so many models who were told directly, why don't you eat cotton balls? It'll make your stomach feel full during show week. Why don't you try some substances? This might help. Like actually recommending drug use to young women in these industries. So I just never understood how how they could be so unethical in every way. And also the withholding of funds. I remember at Next waiting months and months and months and months for a check when I talked to the client and they're like, we paid that within like 15 days. So So I I went through that and like, everyone does,
1: everyone does. You start, you know, when you realize that these problems are not individual, they're systemic and the models start talking to each other. Like that's where you build power, where you can change things. It's absurd. Okay. Just to like, give you an example. Modeling agencies have power of attorney over, it allows them to have massive control over your finances and career. Um, They can negotiate your pay, collect your pay. um, They can, you know, spend your money. um, And yet they claim not to have any fiduciary responsibility to the people they represent. It makes no sense. So they don't have to be financially transparent. They don't have to um, pay you in a reasonable time frame. It's just it's it's so egregious. And um, this bill, the Fashion Workers Act, would make agencies have to be financially transparent, uh, uh, provide um, you know like the, the contracts and agreements with the clients because right now we have no insight into that, the scope of work or rate of pay. Um, it would uh, get do away with these like auto renewing contracts. You'd have to like opt into the contract, not just, you know, be forced into another three year contract. Um, the agencies would have to pay you within 45 days. I mean, these are like, these shouldn't be controversial provisions. No. Yeah. Um, and yet there's always there's always pushback, but all, like, like I said, all the feedback that we've gotten has been overwhelmingly positive. And I really think it would be a game changer for how agencies operate. It's also about like eliminating scams. This is something that's not talked about so much, but a lot of what we hear about through the Model Alliance support line is around like scam agencies where people Will pay hundreds or even thousands of dollars to like sign with an agency that is not a legitimate agency. There's no work to be had. And they're just preying on these young people, mostly young girls' dreams of breaking into the business.
0: Yeah, I know. Absolutely. So, what does it take for a bill to pass? Because I'm completely ignorant on that and I'm very curious. And also, I'm curious if there's like active pushback in those rooms from the agencies. Yeah, I mean, it's, what goes into it is basically
1: raising awareness and and pressure for lawmakers to pass the bill. There, it's often, you know, there, it's not gonna be most people's priority in Albany to protect models and creatives, but we think that um, we deserve to be treated fairly, just like anyone else who works for a living. And the fashion industry is a massive economic driver for the state. You know, this is like a $2.5 trillion global industry. Just like guess, how much do you think New York Fashion Week generates for, um, in terms of income every year?
0: Wow. I have no damn idea. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Okay.
1: So It was $600 million a year. That's a massive amount of money when you consider that the young women and girls who are actually walking on the runway half the time, are not even getting paid. They're getting paid in
0: clothes or Mm -hmm. they're working in debt to their agencies. Yes. Can you talk a bit about how we accrue debt to our agencies? So
1: when you sign with a modeling agency, um, you will often get charged various fees. So, um, you know, there might be like a fee to be on the website. They might fly you over to New York if you are coming from Eastern Europe or Brazil, another country. Um, They'll house you in a model apartment. All of that goes on your debt. And so... Um, they're not just taking taking a commission from the model. They're also profiting on every single transaction. Um, if you they may, if you're doing Fashion Week, like get you a driver, which seems very nice and luxurious. well, actually, you're going to be paying through the nose for that. And so it's pretty common for models, even super successful models who walk in almost every show, you know, like, Teddy Quinlevin, who's like an amazing model who, who stood with us to introduce the, the Fashion Workers Act. She said she walked in 40 shows one season and she basically just broke even. Mm-hmm. And that was because she had the agency charging her all of these different fees and expenses. Half the time, it's like, it doesn't make sense. It's unexplained. I think a lot of these charges are not real in some cases. Um There have been class action lawsuits over this, like this is being litigated, Um, but we're just saying, hey, like let's just create some industry standards and um, these like fees, that's what the commission is for. Like you shouldn't be charging website fees or like I think the funniest one I ever saw was an e-sending fee and the model was like, what is e-sending? And the agency was like, that's for email.
0: Well, it's very expensive to upload a picture on the internet. So let's bear that. It's like ridiculous. Oh my God. Yeah, it is. uh, All of that is atrocious. And again, I want people to understand this is complete industry standard. And it's reminded me of two things. One is like the medical industry, where or the uh, what's it called the insurance industry that has become such a monster because these are arbitrary fees or inflated fees, like charging someone $15 for a cotton swab or something like modeling agencies will do the same thing. It doesn't cost any money to put someone on a website, but they make some fictional fee where it does cost money. And then also it's just so interesting to me because just like, the elements of humanity and humanizing other individuals, primarily humanizing children as well. I think there has been such like animosity against young people that are in this industry. Um, I had a conversation with my friend, Emily Mead, who, um, helped pass this um, act within SAG to standardize intimacy coordinators on sets so that when people are doing sex scenes or there's nudity, that they are protected and that there's a go-between between the source of power, whether it's producers, directors, etc., and the actor. Because same thing. Like it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're like, how could we have for decades asked people to be in this level of intimacy and nudity and not have anyone there to protect them. And like, do you find like you're saying it has good reception, like the work that you're doing and people are really appreciating it and getting on board. I just think it's just interesting on a human level to wonder and be curious about like why it has been so hard to get people to just humanize a model and recognize her rights as an individual. Like, I don't know why an agency would be so committed to deeply abusing these young women and wanting their bodies to be frail, wanting them to be on death's door, wanting them to be on drugs. Like, that sentiment of like woo-woo culture of like, we're not healed until all of us are healed. Like, why do you want an entire agency of clients who are in pain, who are afraid, who have to advocate for themselves, who are on death's door? Like who does that serve? But I don't know. I I wonder what your observation of that has been. Like when people do buck up against it, it's why. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think It's all about having a very myopic view. You know, I think part of what's dehumanizing is that you're talking about a very superficial industry where uh, designers, casting directors, agents are looking at you in terms of like the seams of your clothes. They're, they're looking at you as like, like a coat hanger or a clothes hanger. And there's such an intense focus on that to the that it's like to the exclusion of your humanity, your mental health, your well-being. Um and I why that is, I um I don't know. I, I like to think that people are not like inherently bad I just it is shocking though how that has become so normalized Um, and how people don't see their role in perpetuating it
0: Mm. yeah well this is why laws are so important and what you're doing is so important because we can't change the way like we can't Advocate forever and get to pull on people's heartstrings and and compel them to pay fairly or to not withhold funds. You have to just be like, sorry, it's a law. You just got to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think having standards really does serve everyone. I mean, it, it's it's uh, it shouldn't be controversial. Whatever, we'll see. I I really I really do hope that this legislation passes. And it was drafted with the idea of not you know like I think we could have asked for more um but this was about just creating some baseline protections for people in our industry
0: and this would extend throughout all the United States and carry to other countries that the models are flying to and working in this is just for New York wow. um no, I want it everywhere. <laughs> well, oh,
1: so so the that would, is like a natural segue to our private sector initiative, the Respect Program, which is um, like it's it's sort of it, it would basically create global industry standards. We can't pass laws in every fashion capital um, and. So, like that's why we've been urging companies to sign agreements to uphold standards across, you know, across the board Wherever a model is working, let's say she's represented by an agency that that works in various different countries wherever she goes, she would be protected. um, and that has been slower moving. It's just um, it's a process to get companies to see how it's in their interests to do this because generally companies just don't like regulation. Um, and it's really, it's not until the workers demand better and like put pressure on companies to, to do better, um, in a meaningful way, um, that we're going to see, you know, lasting widespread change it's 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 not up to any one person or organization and if there's like anything i could try to like underscore it's that that this requires people power it requires like all of us coming together and um it also requires resources frankly like this this work doesn't just sort of like happen um without people having, you know, the capacity to work on legislation and pick up the phone to answer the support line and, um, you know, do the research that allows us to use an evidence-based approach for advocacy work. There's, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. Um, we are a small organization. We're a staff of two. Um, oh, wow. and yeah, so it's, it's, definitely something where, you know, it's, it, it requires, it requires people to like step up and pitch in and play an active role.
0: Mm. I think to wrap it up, my, my last points of concern are with weights and health, which would extend into mental health, I would argue, but absolutely physical health, because that's the most apparent one that is so destructive in this industry. And then sexual harassment and being sent to photographers' homes, like you brought up Emily Ratajkowski. I read her book where she was just sent to this photographer's home and she is given the stamp of approval from her agency, like this guy's important, he's legit. So that by the time she's drunk on wine and laying on his bed and uncomfortable and naked, it's like the wheels have fallen off the tracks before she even got on the train. So what is being done to address that? Does the bill also address any of those issues? And yeah, if not, like how do we begin conquering that element of it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the Fashion Workers Act would require agencies to um, look into health and safety on set, and certainly that kind of thing would be covered by the bill. Um, and it requires agencies to register every year. Um, so and there's also a complaint mechanism to the Department of Labor. So um, like an agency would have to be in good standing to be able to operate.
0: Hell yeah. yeah okay great (laughs) yeah yeah because I think the just saddest stickiest part but something that is so key unfortunately is that piece of autonomy and piece of understanding your self-worth and again I'm grateful that this hopefully will be passed because then that will just set a precedent at least at the bare minimum where a girl can be like Maybe I'm in Paris now, but when I was in America, this was not allowed to happen. Just to be able to recognize there's something wrong here. Because again, I've heard you say in interviews, like starting off at 14 years old, how are you supposed to know what's even right or wrong? So many models will experience things and say, couldn't tell what was off. I didn't know why it was wrong. I just felt bad or I just felt skeezy or whatever it may be. So uh, is that a part of what your support line does too, to help women speak to those experiences and recognize things that have happened that were not okay? Yeah. Yeah. We hear from people almost
1: every day about a range of issues, whether it's sexual harassment or assault, um, difficulty getting paid the money they're owed. Um, and we of we try to meet people where they are and, um, help them understand their options. So sometimes people just want to have someone to talk to and feel heard. Other times they want to pursue legal action. Um, We often refer people to attorneys and it doesn't mean that you have to pursue a lawsuit, but I think it just helps to know what your rights are. Um, And then we also connect people with trusted journalists. So, you know, a lot of the reporting on kind of any human rights issues in the fashion industry is actually informed by us. Um, And yeah, we only do that though if someone like wants to go public with their story.
0: Beautiful. So how can we as the public support you and help this pass, give visibility? What do you suggest? Um, If you go to the Model
1: Alliance's website, it's modelalliance.org. Um, there's a lot of information and resources there. You can, um, learn more about the Fashion Workers Act. Um, we have, uh, a bunch of information about how you can contact your lawmaker and encourage people to, um, to pass this bill into law. Um, we have social media assets. If you want to help us raise awareness, um, there are many different ways to plug in. And of course, you know, we're a nonprofit and we run, um, thanks to the, support of, of individuals, you know, pitching in. And, um, so donations also help.
0: Wonderful. And what's the timeline with the bill passing? The session ends
1: in June. So we have, it's a short session. We only have a couple of months. So we're just, you know, going full steam ahead, trying to gain as much momentum and support as we can between now and then.
0: Okay. Awesome. Very last thing. What would you say to a young person who's dipping their toe in and is like, I'm, I'm ready to be a model. What kind of advice would you have for them?
1: <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I think that they should do whatever they want to do, but know um, that they have to be sort of savvy and make sure that they're looking out for their own interests, because even an agent is not necessarily going to be um, doing what's right for you. And, um, and I think like the more you can talk to other models and have a support system and make sure that you're not isolated. If you have questions, there are no dumb questions. If mm-hmm. you um, are put in a situation at a casting or a shoot where you are not comfortable, you um absolutely do not have to do anything that you don't want to do and hopefully it doesn't come to that, but um yeah, and then of course like join the model alliance and get into be- get a better understanding if you're right so that you're not put in those situations in the first place.
0: Amen. Well, thank <laughs> you so much Sarah for this conversation and your time. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Full circle moment for me. My favorite inspirational, aspirational Delia's model. Now doing oh my goodness. <laughs> like you were, you were my number one. And now I'm like, wow. And she is the one that picked up the torch and did it. I know you don't want to like pat yourself on the back and be like, this is all me, which is great. I love humility, but also what you're doing is really beautiful, important. And I'm so glad you're doing it.
1: Thank you. No, <laughs> this was fun. I'm glad it's, it's nice to talk to someone who has been through it and gets it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening. We love you all. God bless.